Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is a dear friend, a longtime CNBC reporter, Julia Borston, author of When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. But my other favorite thing about the confidence piece, as someone who can be very anxious and nervous herself, is that sometimes it's valuable not to be confident. And there is this this piece in the book about how women benefit, everyone would benefit, if when you're making decisions, you start off in an information gathering stage. And instead of being super confident when you're trying to gather data, you turn down your confidence, be not confident at all, be confused, be concerned, be anxious, gather all the data, as many differing viewpoints as possible. Once you've figured out the right answer with all the humility that you could possibly have, you know your decision, jack back up your confidence, and then you execute. And this idea that confidence can be on a dial and there is value in not being confident sometimes is something that I was never taught. And it feels very reassuring to learn. So says Julia Borston, who has spent over two decades as a reporter working for CNBC, CNN, and Fortune. She's also the creator of the Disruptor 50 franchise, a list which highlights private companies transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. Her first book, When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them, draws on her work studying and interviewing hundreds of executives throughout her impressive career to tell the stories of more than 60 female CEOs and leaders who have fought massive social and institutional headwinds to run some of the world's most innovative and successful companies. Combining years of academic research and interviews, Julia reveals these women's powerful commonalities. They are highly adapted to change, deeply empathic in their management style, and much more likely to integrate diverse points of view into their business strategies. This makes these women uniquely equipped to lead, grow businesses, and navigate crises in ways where their male counterparts don't seem to be as gifted. Today's episode digs into Borston's meticulously researched book as we cover a few of the female tendencies that correlate with great leadership, how women embrace the role of fire prevention as opposed to firefighting, their ability to avoid ethical quandaries and groupthink, and the value of gaining confidence through experience. 
The monoculture tends to focus on iconic female leaders, she tells us, but there's so much more to gain from focusing on the stories that are not being told, expanding the diversity of images of success for women and men alike. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Congrats on your book. As I was texting you, I knew it would be really good, but I was very impressed. And I thought it was what I what I tire of as a reader, and and I'm sure other people can relate, is that there's a certain echelon of of women who lead companies who get a lot of media attention for for rightly or wrongly. And I feel like a lot of us know those stories or we know that the headlines of those stories, but the best parts of the book, the most joyful parts of your book, I thought, were all these incredible women building companies that are solving massive issues. I had never heard of them. I had never heard of the companies. So that was so delightful. And to have those juxtaposed against people who we might recognize. Yeah. I mean, I think what I was trying to do is take the fact that in my work, I mean, I interview hundreds and hundreds of people and I was finding these amazing people and and telling their stories in small ways on CNBC or with our Disruptor 50 list that looks at private startups. But a lot of these companies were so impressive to me and just weren't on the mainstream radar. And at the same time, I was interviewing people um, like Jen Hyman, who founded Rent the Runway, or Julie Rainwright from The Real Real. And the real story was one that I didn't think was really being told. So the combination of those things, I think that like the monoculture tends to focus in on these big, iconic female leaders. And some of them are great, like Ursula Burns. She is a legend. She's amazing. She has a book that that is recently out, and she's phenomenal. And it's great to focus on her. But there are these other women's stories who aren't being told. And at the same time, you have a couple of these women, like Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, who are disasters, and the media loves to hone in on them and tell their stories over and over and over. And the number of magazine covers that were dedicated to someone like Elizabeth Holmes at the at the absence of all these other stories, I think I was just like, we just need to rebalance this a bit. And as you saw in the book, the book's incredibly positive. There's been enough ink spilled on the disasters and on the women who were canceled for one reason or another. And I didn't feel like I needed to replicate that. Like that was already done. And I think there there needs to be a little bit more of a diversity of images out there of what it looks like to be a CEO, not just for women. I want women to see that this is what CEOs look like. People you've never heard of who don't lead like the typical archetypal guy in a suit or dude in a hoodie. And they don't look like Elizabeth Holmes. You know, these are just, there's a much broader array of leadership styles. And I think it's not just important for women to know that, but for men to understand that as well. Because in a lot of situations, they're the ones who are controlling the the venture capital dollars, and they need to see that success doesn't just look like a Mark Zuckerberg type. No, totally. And there's, as you point out, so much pattern matching in Silicon Valley. That's how most these small circles, Whisper Networks, warm intros of, oh, this looks like, or it's like movie pitching, right, in Hollywood. It's like this, but this like this meets this in a way that actually doesn't really serve innovation or give people who have interesting ideas or perspectives on underrepresented communities that will soon become dominant communities a chance to really succeed and i love that like even as you mentioned that monomyth but this idea of female leadership that is perpetuated and that we just love 
toxic leaders, toxic cultures. And of course, there's some of that. It's there's some of a lot of that with male led companies as well. But that seems to be the only narrative that people can really embrace in a way that's so reductive. And I don't want to dwell on it too long. But what do you like in covering news? Is it just do you think that that's what drives traffic? Like, what's that cycle? It's interesting because, you know, I started working this book in 2019 and two years earlier was the start of the whole Me Too Time's Out movement. And my book is also not at all about that. My book is very much, I think, a reaction to that. I think that that was a necessary movement, is a necessary movement, and it is a necessary conversation, but that is not about solutions. And I think that that whole movement was of calling out men who were toxic or who were inappropriate or who crossed whatever lines in the workforce was a certain moment in time. And then that, I think, drove a lot of the backlash against female leaders. Okay, say if you're going to tear down these men, women are going to be torn down along with them for totally different reasons. And a lot of times the women who were canceled were canceled for behavior or leadership styles that may have been tolerated in men. This idea of being too aggressive or pushy or demanding that people work all the time. I mean, Elon Musk talks about sleeping underneath his desk and that is celebrated as a, as a workaholic culture. So I think there are, there are these two things going on. One is this, this negativity around, and oftentimes entirely necessary negativity around Me Too, the negativity around cancel culture, around female leaders. And what I wanted to do was something different. I wanted to show the solutions in the women who are doing phenomenal things, whose stories were not well known, and whose leadership styles have not been focused on or talked about because they didn't match the, the typical stereotype of what leaders look like. So I wanted to really do something different. And I think that, you know, I've been, I've been a journalist for my entire career. And I think sometimes these things feed upon themselves. So one story leads to another. One story prompts a, another journalist to do a deeper dive or investigation. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. And I don't think this journalism is all a bad thing. It's just not what I wanted to do here. I wanted to be more solution-oriented. And I am optimistic, right? I am optimistic that if people follow the data, the data shows that companies with diverse leaders, with diverse boards, with diverse management, they actually just perform better. And I am, you know, I, I would love to live in a world where there's more equity in the workplace and having people approach that from a philanthropic perspective is never going to get us there. Like we're never going to get to equity if it happens because companies are like, oh, this is our philanthropic endeavor. It's like, no, you have to understand that investing in equity is actually going to make you more money as a company. And I think that's why I'm optimistic. I think they'll see the data. Let's start there, actually. So let's start with the Greek. People might have heard of this study of the Greek murder mystery that they did. I don't remember where they did this study. Northwestern. Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah. So will you talk us through the study and then also the the discomfort that people had? This is one of my favorite studies in the book. So I started off with the interviews. And then I was like, why are these leadership styles so effective? Like, and I wanted to sort of understand why what these women were doing that a lot of times they didn't even understand it as anything other than their sort of natural way of being in the world. Why does this make so much sense for them and their companies? And why does it work so well? So I started reading all these academic studies done by professors all over the world. And one of my favorite ones was out of a, out of Northwestern University where they gathered all these college students and they asked them to solve a a hypothetical murder mystery. And they gave them clues and they tried to figure out which types of groups were best equipped 
to solve the problem. But they did it by grouping people based on their fraternity and sorority. So they would have a, a group of fraternity members together, and then they would have a, like three people together, and they would bring in a fourth person. If the fourth person was not from the original sorority, if it had a different culture, a different code, and they didn't know each other, then they actually solved the crime much, much better if they hadn't figured it out already, much faster, with much more accuracy than if they were from the same group. So what that effectively means is if you are with a group of people you know, someone else comes who speaks your code and your language, you're going to agree with each other much more easily. You're not going to challenge each other. And so what was really interesting to me, though, is the, the professors who did the study dug a little bit deeper, and they found that it was when an outsider joined the group, they solved the problem better, but not because the outsider brought new ideas. It wasn't like the outsider was like, oh, I know what to do here. This is, this is the source of the crime. What they found was that the outsider actually forced the people already in the group to be more careful and more cautious and re-examine their thoughts themselves. And my takeaway from this is that if people are just surrounded by other people like them, they're less likely to question, A, question each other, but examine themselves and ask themselves, like, am I thinking this just because this is my first judgment, like my, my, like my first instinct, or do I really know what I'm talking about here? And I think about this study all the time. I mean, it seems so relevant when you're watching kids on the playground, you know, and it, it just seems so relevant to this question of problem solving, decision making, and how we are all better if we are surrounded by people who are not just like us. We can question ourselves and push ourselves to find the best answer ourselves if there are other people there who aren't going to just be like, yeah, 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 whatever you said is fine. Yeah. And then there's another component to it, which I think is really fascinating, which is the groups that have been interrupted by total strangers, I'm quoting you, judged themselves to be much less effective and express much less confidence in their solution, even if it turned out to be the correct one, which it was twice as often. So that felt harder, right? It felt there was resistance there that they had to overcome, but it ultimately moved them to a much better place which is fascinating because I think often we're like, if it's easy, it's good. If it feels easy, like, it's not always good. Easy yeah. is not always good. It feels harder, but the outcome was better. And I think it feels harder because you're forced to question your own beliefs, question your own approach to problem solving. But if you're surrounded by people who are not like you, who aren't going to automatically agree with you because you see, speak the same code and maybe see the world more in the same way, then it's harder for you, but you yourself will be better. And I think that's a great sort of overarching message from this book is that there is this great advantage of diversity. And one thing that's interesting is female leaders are more likely to prioritize not only the gender diversity, but also the racial diversity of their organizations. So that's one reason why if you have a woman in charge, she's more likely to create situations like that Northwestern University with an outgroup member who comes in, an outsider to the fraternity. And it says, yeah, it may not feel good, but the outcome is better. And there are actually a couple of companies in the book who I highlight who create scenarios where they try to bring a clash of ideas together because they know that if you can pull ideas from anywhere across an organization, you're going to have better ideas than if you're just solving problems with a narrow group that looks and sounds and, and feels all like each other. Right. And as any group, as in that Northwestern study, over time, you do become that fraternity or sorority just by spending a lot of time with each other. So let's back all the way up because I just want to highlight the quality, the range of qualities that you 
distilled from the women that you profiled and the way that they correlate with great leadership, it might not show up as much in men. Like their their tendency to be more considerate of data when they're evaluating risks. Their, as you just mentioned, likeliness to include varied perspectives when they're making decisions, leading with vulnerability, willingness to ignore expectations and do things their own or different ways, and that they frequently focus on achieving a greater purpose beyond profits and are more likely to pursue social and environmental goals, which was such an evangelizing, just to be an evangelist for your book, like it made me fired up. I was like, I'm going to be a CEO. I want to solve a big social problem. Like I felt incredibly inspired. Well, it's so um, interesting because women are statistically more likely to found companies with an additional social or environmental purpose. Not that men don't also do this, but women found those companies at equal numbers as men, whereas women are less likely to found companies in say the enterprise software space. But what's so interesting about that is there is a huge advantage in founding a company with a social or environmental purpose. And I've talk to so many CEOs about this. I'm like, why, what do you think the advantage is? There's data about it. But when I ask the women, they say, are you kidding me? Like founding a company is so hard. You have to be so determined and so persistent. The whole thing is such a nightmare to push through all these challenges. But if you feel like there's some additional benefit, like if you know that if you succeed, you're going to be helping the environment, or if you succeed, you're going to be helping young moms who are struggling with, with their, their babies or whatever that additional thing is, it makes you more determined. And it, it gives you more energy and, and reason to persist despite all these challenges. There are also other good reasons. If you have a consumer-facing product, you're more likely to be able to draw customers. It's easier to hire employees and all of that. But there is like serious reason why it's great to have that additional benefit when you're founding a company. And when you talk about equal number of women to men, do you mean that there's an equal number of companies or when you break down the number, the companies that women are founding, which are fewer, right? Or is that a myth? The data is complicated because there isn't, universal data. We don't know how many people out there try to found companies. We do know that women are 42% of all small business owners or all business owners. So women are 42% of business owners, but in the VC space, in the tech the tech space where they're getting VC dollars, they're only getting 3% of VC dollars. And I believe it's about 6.5% of all VC deals. So the numbers are much smaller, but the numbers get much even, much more even when it comes to purpose-driven companies what I think is particularly interesting, because you talked about pattern matching and all the bias that women face, the bias actually dissipates a little bit if you're talking about purpose-driven companies. There was this crazy study I included about business school students, and they were presented with the same company, and they were asked to evaluate a company, same you know, strategy, same revenue streams, whatever it was. If a woman was presenting versus a man, the same company, they judged the male companies more likely to succeed. That's bias. That's just implicit bias. If the female company and the male company both had a purpose, like an additional social environmental purpose, they were judged the same. So the addition of purpose eliminated the bias, which well, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because women are supposed to care, Julia. We're supposed to be nurturing mothers, which is all wonderful and true. But it's also kind of messed up how yeah. it how how we're penalized and and you talk a lot about that how men are penalized when they show these more feminine qualities as leaders, and conversely, women are penalized when they show up more in their masculine. We just love those gender biases. Yeah, and it's not fair for men. I mean, they there are all these statistics about like servant leadership. This is this idea that you should prioritize your employees and your customers and really put them first. 
And by the way, this is a strategy that has worked for people like Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, the CEO of FedEx, they've talked about using servant leadership as their approach. So this is something that men do also. Women tend to do it more and it's very effective when women do it, but men should not be penalized for taking approaches that are more traditionally or stereotypically feminine. It's just, that's a lose-lose for everyone. And then I think you called it agentic. Is that right? Agentic means this idea of like, I'm going to use the word bossy because it's a word we use a lot in, in our family. I have two kids. Usually I'm the one being called bossy, but agentic means like top down. I'm telling you what to do as opposed to more communal, like bringing in ideas from across an organization. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift. And over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. So let's go to this idea of divergent thinking and how women, I feel like people always say that, and it's not actually maybe borne out in research that women are better at multitasking, but that we are, there is research that suggests that we're better, and this is socialized, again, probably not natural or, or who we are out of the body, but that we're better at contextualized or divergent thinking. Can you expound on that for us a little bit? Yes. And I will say I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist. I tried to stay away from biology in every way possible. I do think a lot of these leadership things that we, I, I wrote about it's the book. It's all culture. 
but it's, it's cultural. It's so socialized and it's expectations of both men and women. So staying away from the brain science, which there's plenty of, but that's not my, that's not my expertise. It's what I would call seeing the forest versus seeing the trees. This idea that when, when women are problem solving, they're likely to go off on a tangent and say like, hey, okay, so we're trying to solve this problem of healthcare, but maybe we should really look at social services and whether the people who are coming back to the emergency room are like, maybe their their housing is falling through or they're not getting their, their food stamps benefits. Like, let's just try to figure out like big picture what their challenges are. So that's like the convergent, like let's look at all the different pieces of this or let's look at what their transportation challenges are. Maybe that's something that's putting additional pressures on them. So basically going off topic to try to understand the full scope of a problem. The opposite of that is saying, okay, let's just try to get this person into the emergency room, fix their immediate health problem and get them out the door immediately. So men are are, are typically more likely to try to drive towards an immediate solution more quickly. Whereas women are described by one of the women I quote in the book as being fire preventers. Instead of being firefighters rushing in there to put out the blaze, they're saying, what can we do to prevent a fire from happening next time? Let's do big, big picture problem solving here. And the healthcare company I was just alluding to is one I, I profile in the book. I love this woman. This is, it is a fabulous story. Her name is Toyin Ajayi. She's now CEO of a company called City Block Health. She started off as a founder. And this is a company that's basically trying to help fix the the healthcare system by providing social services and addressing the whole person. So trying to figure out if there are people who are on the lower end of the income scale and they are ending up in the emergency room at great expense to the to the whole healthcare system over and over and over, they're clearly not getting their needs met in a way that's efficient, effective, or makes any sense whatsoever. So they get paid on the long-term health outcomes of their clients, of their of the of the people in the healthcare system. And so they will go to people's homes, they'll meet them in their homes, they'll try to learn about them and make sure they're getting all of their needs being met and really trying to relieve the pressure on the emergency room system. And it ultimately long-term, it's much more cost-effective, but it's a totally different model of thinking about healthcare. And the woman Toyin, who's the CEO, she talked about it as fixing the water supply. She started off her career in Sierra Leone in a hospital where she was trying to fix this pediatric hospital where like people wouldn't bring in their kids until they were like near death. It was just a, a horrible situation for a pediatric hospital. And there was no running water when she got there. And she was like, guys, you know, she had just been in, in medical school in, in, in the UK and she went gone to Stanford. She's like, guys, we cannot have this pediatric hospital function until we fix the water supply. You're literally, they were bringing in water from outside. Anytime they needed water, they couldn't sterilize instruments. And I think this concept of fixing the water supply, you have to get back to basics, think about solving the underlying problem before you could really figure out what, what needs to have yeah. a bandaid on it. And then what I thought was another really beautiful and moving part of that story is how she went out into the community to understand why everyone was waiting to bring their children in and learned a really valuable lesson in that culturally or socially people saw that hospital as the place like that where your children die because they were this self-perpetuating cycle of kids arriving near death and not emerging so there was no faith in the system and so instead they were going to this medicine woman because they knew her yeah it's all about trust and actually trust is something that comes up a lot in this book 
and this idea of building trust and building relationships. So Toyin was like, I need to understand why people aren't coming in until their children are, are so sick, they're close to death. And then they were saying, we're not coming in because our kids are dying in your hospital. And it was this vicious cycle. And she realized she needed to, to earn their trust. And I loved what she told me about how she knew that these, these families who lived right near the hospital would rather buy their medicine from a natural healer then they would come into the hospital and get and get scientific medicine, scientific solutions, because they trusted this woman and they they knew her. So Toyin went and bought some some of these medicines, these natural medicines from the healer, and she kept them in her purse for years as a reminder of the this idea that you need to have trust with the community. And if you don't, you're never going to be able to help them, and you're never going to be able to serve them. And it was such a priority on trust with your community and also with whether it's your customers or your employees or whatever, it's all comes down to trust. And also this idea of humility. I mean, she, she went and sat in people's on the floor of people's homes on their dirt floors. And she said, tell me what I need to know. And this idea of humility is something that comes up a lot in this chapter I wrote on managing in crisis. There were these huge, you know, massive nonprofits that were trying to deal with the pandemic. One was Feeding America. The other is Care USA, which is part of Care International. Care USA operates in 69 countries. It's a massive organization, thousands and thousands of people. But what they found is during the pandemic, they didn't know what to, or it turns out they didn't know what to do. They thought they knew what to do. They had a plan. They were distributing soap and sanitizer and doing what they thought was right. And the people on the ground were saying, we can't eat soap. We do not need your soap. That is not helping us. So they had the humility to listen and go around and listen to what individual communities needed. And if they hadn't had that humility, they would not have been able to figure out how to actually serve the people. And that was their job to serve these people. And that was true for Feeding America and also for care. And I think it was true for Toyin. She just needed to sit there on the ground and listen. And and with humility, you can learn. Yeah, I, I had a big crush on that. CEO of Feeding America too, and her incredible story and her family who had raised what 108 foster kids. Yeah, Claire Babino Fontenot, CEO of Feeding America. I mean, such an amazing story. I wept on the phone with her when because she was dealing. I, I interviewed her several times over the course of the pandemic, and she was so determined to have Feeding America work and have it stretch and do things that no one would have ever thought was possible pre-pandemic. But she had this amazing hope and optimism that really came from her parents. And her parents had either adopted or fostered 107 other kids other than her. So there was never more than about 15 kids at home at one time. But over the course of her parents' life, they had all these kids that they took care of. And her whole attitude was like, they couldn't not help someone they saw in need. And they weren't wealthy. They were not wealthy. They were not wealthy. They lived in Louisiana. They would harvest crops that they grew just in their tiny backyard. They would buy a cow or a pig and they would kind of graze it around the neighborhood. The pig would eat kitchen scraps and they all just chipped in and helped each other out. And they were not wealthy, but they made it work. And she, I mean, Claire is so amazing. I just love the quotes she had in there so much because it just makes you realize that if you were determined and you feel like there's no, you can't fail. Like her parents could not, not feed those kids. They saw kids in need. They had to take them in 
So they would all go, you know, they would harvest crops together and bring home the extras. I mean, they just had systems to make it work. They would go to the cannery, you know, it was just amazing. But this applied when she was trying to raise money during the pandemic, trying to get people to share more resources with them because the Feeding America is this massive network of food pantries and food banks. And she said, we had to make it so, we just had to make it work. And I, I include this, this crazy study from Harvard from like the fifties or sixties called the hope experiment, where they put a rat in water and Mm. figured out how long it takes rats to drown. And then they figured out that if they save the rat right before it's about to drown, and then they put it back into the water, the rat will, instead of living for like 15 minutes, it will live for like 60 hours. And that once you give an animal hope that it's going to be saved it has super unbelievable abilities that did not seem physically possible before and is a kind of creepy experiment and kind of gross, but it does say something that like, she was just like, we have to do this. We're going to do this. I have hope. And she really tried to lead that way. And it seemed like it had an influence across her whole organization. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills. So you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep. Up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Spot pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. I want to talk about glass cliffs, but before we get to this whole idea of glass cliffs and companies in crisis and how women are often brought in to lead and let's table that for now. But I want to go to Sally Krawcheck, who I also adore. And this idea of morality or, you know, reformers and different moral codes for women and how typically, and not to generalize, but we are less inclined to distort ourselves and more inclined, I want to say, towards integrity, even when that decision is really hard. Can you- Yeah, I mean, this interestingly, statistically, women are- and, and there are some studies about this, women are more likely to make ethical dis- or make decisions based on ethics than men are, and they're expected to be even more ethical than men are expected to be. So they may be more ethical, but then they're also held to an even higher standard than that. So part of it is, is true. And then part of it is this, this double expectation. And therefore, if women fall short, if women do have an ethical failure, they're judged much more harshly than men are because they're held to that other standard. Yeah. And if people don't know Sally, she was, I guess, the most powerful woman on Wall Street for a period. And then when she insisted that clients of Smith Barney, right, or City, City, that they that they return, that they had given them terrible advice and they needed to restore trust and honor to the institution by refunding clients. And they did that to some extent, but she knew in the process of fighting for this at the board level that she would be fired. And that's- yeah. Exactly what happened. And now she has Alvest and I love Sally. She's yeah. Fine. I mean, she's amazing. And so I, I, the way she described it to me was so powerful because she said she 
she knew that the company had done the wrong thing and it was a mistake. They hadn't intentionally misled clients, but the financial crisis happened. They promised clients that their the value of some investment wouldn't below wouldn't fall more than a certain amount and it fell basically by 99% and they had said it would there's no way. They had never presented it as such. So it wasn't intentionally misleading, but they they were wrong. They had misled clients and she describes this debate about what do I do? Do I do I push for this? You know, she'd already pushed for it. And everyone had said, like, why would you bother giving money back when we don't need to? We're not legally obligated to. And she pulled everyone in the office and said, what would you do? And a lot of people were like, look, you're in a powerful position. Just stick it out and you'll be able to fight for the right side like next time around. And others were like, do the right thing. So she went home that night and she remembers having dinner with her kids in this moment of like looking at her kids who were old enough to know whether what she was going to do was going to be the right thing or the wrong thing. She was like, I don't want to go home to my kids and tell them that I didn't do the ethical thing. Like I have to do the right thing. And, and she went into the board meeting for Sydney and she basically went over her boss's head because he had said no. And she said, I think we need to do this. We need to pay back people the money that they didn't think they could possibly lose with this financial instrument. And so so she got fired or, or pushed out. She got pushed out in, in a way that these things sometimes happen. You, know, you get your, your you know, power taken away from you slowly. And she felt like she was effectively getting pushed out, but she did the right thing. And she said later on, three of the people in that boardroom later, not in the room, later, they sort of thanked her and apologized for everything. Typical. In the moment, guys, time to stand up for other people <laughs> in the moment, but not to be binary. This I thought this was a really interesting quote from a psychologist who has an amazing last name, Marette Wettelsborg. She coined this term cultural numbness, which is how you might think that you are inured to unethical behavior, but that you can become so accustomed to a company's culture and its practices that, quote, no matter how principled you are, the bearings of your moral compass will shift toward the culture of your organization or team. And this is more likely to happen the longer you are at a company and yet, women appear to be more resistant to cultural numbness than men. But I'd never heard of that concept. And I, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's like a version of groupthink, right? It's basically yeah. like groupthink, but this idea that if you're just part of a, an organization long enough, you're going to lose sight of what might be offensive or wrong, you know? And I think one reason why women may be more resistant to cultural numbness is because, unfortunately, more often than not, they're outsiders. You know, Sally was very rare and that she was a woman in that environment and she could not have lost sight of that. So I think, you know, even if you're become an insider and, but you've your whole life been an outsider, you're more likely to hold on to that outsider perspective. Yeah. That's no, really interesting. All right. Let's talk about, let's talk about glass cliffs because I think that this happens not only to women, but people, but to men of color, I think as well, but I might be wrong on that. But this idea that a company needs a turnaround or it's going downhill quickly and they're like, oh, put a woman in. Like there, she'll probably fail, right? Or or how much worse could it get? Right. Or like, who cares what happens now? It's tough anyways. Let's give a woman a shot at fixing it. So glass cliff is, is a great term, but what it technically refers to is this idea when a company's already in trouble that you would put a woman in. And so in a lot of ways, she might be more likely to fail because you're putting her into a position where the company's already teetering in a tough situation. So you could say that in, in some of Sally Krawcheck's roles, the company was in a, in a tough situation. She was put in to save the day, 
But I think that it's hopefully women are going to hit more of a critical mass in leadership positions. So this happens less and less. But one thing that's interesting is that in when companies are in crisis, the employees say they would actually rather have a women, woman in charge. So there could be various reasons for that, um, including this idea that women are supposed to be more nurturing. But this idea that women are put in when a company's on the verge of of a, of a major challenge is a is a not a good thing for women in business because then you have these high profile failures and then that's all anyone can talk about instead of the successes. Yeah, no, exactly. I also thought it was fascinating how, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, but how the public reacts to the announcement of a female CEO. And you gave a little stock tip, which is, this is a fascinating bit of data that when women CEOs get a lot of media attention, it is not positive and the stock drops and you should buy it because it typically always rebounds and then some, right? But then it's the inverse for men. Well, look, I'm not, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a stock picker here, Elise. Um, and you I heard it from time, Julia. Say, historically, historically, if a lot of attention is paid to the fact that a new CEO is a woman and how rare that is and how unusual that is, that is not traditionally or is not statistically been a good thing for the stock. And over time, it all evens out. But there's something that's, you know, you know, one of the women in the book, Jennifer Hyman, who's CEO of Run the Runway, says she has to spend so much of her time just talking about being a female CEO. What's it like to be a rare female CEO? That there's this crazy double standard spent on just the female, her femaleness, and that yeah. femaleness eats up so much of her time and energy that it it is it's not fair for for multiple reasons. But I do think that this idea that the media does do this thing of othering women who are CEOs, like look how crazy it is, a female CEO. And for certainly for that period of time that they were tracking the stock movements, it was not good for the stocks. And then ultimately over a six month period, things normalized again. Yeah. So bye, bye, <laughs> bye. This is a conversation that we've had together before. So one of the things, as you might remember, that drives me nuts is when people suggest that women have a confidence issue or a confidence gap, that there's something inherent in us that prevents us from stepping up to the plate. And this drives me nuts because I don't think that women have a confidence gap at all. We just feel that we have to state that we have a confidence gap because the world is so eager to put us in our place. So I think it's a performance of modulating ourselves according to the culture so that people don't think that we are too big for our britches. And I loved your your conversation because there is actual data. And again, I would I would argue that I think younger women aren't stating their confidence, but regardless, women Women's confidence goes up and men's conf- confidence declines. Is that accurate? Yes. So I love this data so much too. And also, look, I feel like one reason this book is so jam-packed with data for me is because I needed to justify and have evidence for my confidence in these things that I'm sharing and saying. I so, know. So, it's a, I it's know. A, it's a, I'm <laughs> grateful for the, I get it. I did the same thing, but yeah. it's but so basically, conscious of it. Yeah, people are conscious. So statistically, women start out in their 20s, not as confident as men are. And then somewhere around four, and men start out more confident. And if you think about it, straight out of college, like, should you really be that confident? Like, I don't know. Should men graduate from college so sure they could take on the world? I would say I graduated not so confident as a 21-year-old. Mark Zuckerberg with his I'm CEO bitch business cards. He was very confident. He, was, he turned out to be right, but he was confident. So you, so men start off 
more confident, women start off less confident. And then somewhere around 40, it, it, it crosses and women and men start to have around 40 or 50, around the same amount of confidence. As women get older, they become more confident and men's confidence declines. So relative to women's. So what that indicates is that women are gain confidence based on their experience, their years in the workforce, their understanding of, of what they can do. Like they're just getting to know themselves and their experience better and feeling more confident every year based on what they learn. Because of that, we see more women taking risks around 45, 50 because their confidence has sort of excelled. But to me, what that said is that women's confidence rises in correlation with like with their experience and abilities. You should get more confident every year. I've gotten so much more confident every year because I know I know more. I'm not just a kid trying to figure things out. So to me, that that is a great, it's a great thing to have your confidence grow with age as it should. And maybe it indicates that men shouldn't have been so confident right off the bat with no reason to be so confident. But I think a lot of that is just taught that it, it's taught and socially accepted. But my other favorite thing about the confidence piece as someone who can be very anxious and nervous ourselves is that sometimes it's valuable not to be confident. And there is this, this piece in the book about how women benefit, everyone would benefit if when you're making decisions, you start off in an information gathering stage. And in, instead of being super confident when you're trying to gather data, you turn down your confidence, be not confident at all, be confused, be concerned, be anxious, gather all the data, as many differing viewpoints as possible. Once you've figured out the right answer with all the humility that you could possibly have, you know your decision, jack back up your confidence, and then you execute. And this idea that confidence can be on a dial and there is value in not being confident sometimes is something that I was never taught. And it feels very reassuring to learn. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, I think that's a great moment. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, they use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, 
Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with cozy earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. This is a staggering study, and this made me very sad. But I also wonder if this isn't why confidence builds over time as women learn to trust themselves more than they learn to trust exterior feedback, which is this fortune study of 250 employee performance reviews. When they assessed these, they found, okay, this, and as you write, this is not a typo, 71% of women and three two to three percent of men had received negative feedback. 71% of women, two to three percent of men, and a different quality of feedback. Whereas 81% of men received constructive feedback, only 23% of women did. The majority of feedback for women centered on personality traits rather than workplace performance. Okay. So I, I think anyone listening is like, yeah, it's probably true, right? Like, I've certainly, I mean, I don't know. That's, it, it's staggering. I mean, and what's interesting is 250 people is a relatively small study compared to most of the studies in the book, which are, are many more people. But I think there was something about that that resonated so much with me. And this idea that women are given feedback on their style and men are given feedback on their substance is doubly offensive. And it bothers me because not only is just, it's just obviously unfair, but women are missing out on valuable feedback. I mean, I, I'm desperate for feedback every day in my job. Speaking of confidence, I'm never going to get better if I don't have people telling me what I've done wrong or what I could do better. And so I think there's something that's really, really um, insidious, insidious and unfair about that approach of giving people feedback on their style rather than their substance. But what was helpful for me learning that and seeing that study is that it helped me understand when people told me I was being harsh or aggressive or abrasive or any of the words that have been used to describe my style as a journalist, I could say, wait, wait a second, like, is this actually fair? Is this, mm-hmm. is this guy saying anything that I about me and what, how I'm actually doing? Or is it really just his reaction to me and not his inability to look at my actual performance? So having that study in the back of my head has, I think, been really empowering for me to know not to take things personally. Yeah. No, and it's interesting. And I would imagine, and you write a little bit about this, but as a journalist who's profiling and obviously very pro-woman, but when you are are hard on a woman or when you push her as a journalist, the feedback can be that you're like ganging up on them, right? Or being harsh. Or there's there's an idea sort of in this wider cultural movement towards women supporting w- women that that's a binary approach and that you as a woman must condone everything that every other woman does and condemn everything that every man does. How do you hold that as you do your job, which is to be an objective truth and fact finder and storyteller? I mean, I think that if I don't, like, if that's not in my head, I'm just doing my job. I mean, right. I tell the story. I mean, I've been doing this for so long. I've been a journalist since 2000. I've always done business news. I think I get better every year. Like, I know, I know what I'm doing, but I tell the story in the book about how I was interviewing Ann Sarnoff, who at the time was CEO of Warner Brothers. 
And the company just made a really controversial decision to put all of their movies on HBO Max at the same time as, at the same time as in theaters. And like, it was just one of these things where everyone was really upset about it. And so I really pushed her on it. I cited all of these examples of people who were saying this was a terrible idea and filmmakers weren't going to want to work with them. And I just did my job. And she answered. And when she didn't, when she sort of obfuscated, I pushed her, but it was all like a very normal interview. I was tough where it felt appropriate. And I listened to her. I didn't interrupt her. To me, interrupting someone is like shows that you're not listening to their answer, but I really, I really listened to her. And then I pushed her when it was appropriate. So then I got a phone call from a PR person who was like, gosh, you were so mean. You were so harsh. And of course, I don't want some PR person to keep his clients from talking to me because he thinks I'm going to be mean in an interview. But I had just read that Fortune magazine story. So I said, gee, would you have said the same thing to one of my male colleagues? And I named a couple of my male colleagues who also do interviews. Like they do interviews all the time. Do you ever think they're mean or harsh? And the this PR person was gobsmacked because I really was like, what are you talking about here? Like, are, is this really fair? And he did not expect me to say that. And he just thought about it for a second. And he said, you know what? I, I think I would have expected that from them. I just didn't expect it from you. And so basically what he was admitting he did have a double standard and he recognized it. And I was just doing my job and I was doing a good job. I was doing a good job. And he just had a double standard. And he was like, you know, what? I'm going to think about that. And I, I was proud of myself because I got him to back, a, to back off and admit he was in the wrong. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, I've, I've been called many names, most of which I think are, are not fair because I'm just like doing my job. job. Well, I'm it, sure it comes that, with the territory. Yeah. I'm sure one of your male counterparts would have been called tough, right? Which doesn't tough. have the same, yeah, yeah, yeah. The same association. Yeah. I want to touch quickly on this networking and how that so dramatically, uh, this was shocking to me as an introvert and someone, you know, I never joined chief. I don't really join clubs. I've never joined. I, I never, I don't know if I've ever been in a club, Julia, but <laughs> I'm missing out, right? Because well, it's not just about I, clubs. It's about groups of women. Yeah. I was so surprised by this data. The data shows that groups of women really help each other and not just help each other by like having a good time, feeling good. There's data that shows that women can help, just being in a group of women can help prevent bias and stereotype from bothering you. So one of the studies in here, and I could go on and on about this forever, is that they put groups of women together and they told them, these are engineering students, they told them that women are less good at math, women just aren't as good as math, and then they gave them a math test. The women who were not in a group of women who just got the, were told the stereotype and then had to take the math test underperformed how they would typically perform and underperformed men. If you put a group of women together, give them the network, the ability to talk together, and then you present them with a stereotype, women are bad at math, and then you present them with a math test, the stereotype had no impact whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So basically it's like this idea that a group of women can help like immunize you against stereotype and help bolster you and prevent you from being bothered by stereotypes so much of this is about what you have to figure out how to tune out and not listen to. And being in a group of women can really help you with that. And also there's data about having women who are not just people who you work with, but diverse women from different backgrounds, you can help each other learn to negotiate better and to figure out how to navigate different work environments. 
So unlike you, Lise, I am an extrovert. I love being around different groups of women, but I'm not a joiner and I'm not in, I'm not in a lot of clubs. But once I saw this data, I realized when I was feeling discouraged at work, just being in a group of women, whether it's just organizing a, a dinner with a group of friends or going to some event to hear a reading or a book talk or something, there's actual statistical value for how it helps women navigate workplace challenges when they have that sense of community or an actual group of people to draw on for advice. Yeah, no, I thought it was, there was some staggering, like people who went to conferences and like, like 3X compared to the control group who hadn't gone yet, received promotions. Like it's pretty amazing how, well, I, and honestly, Julia, I, I felt like when Women Lead felt like that sort of gathering, it's it has that sort of inspirational power where if you're an introvert like me, maybe you'll just you'll get the same effect from these pages. And maybe, maybe you need when women lead like a network effect. You need you need to do lean in circles, but do it do it in the 2022 way. Well, I am very flattered by that, Elise. But I do think there are all these amazing organizations that are out there and they really have grown in the past, call it five years. Like a lot of them started around 2017, 2018. And there, I mean, they're amazing resources, not just lean in, but there are some of these professional organizations like Chief or the We Suite or the Crew. And some of them are like industry specific. And I just think there are all these amazing organizations or conferences of women. That's when you were referencing women who went to these conferences were more likely to get promotions and pay raises than women who had signed up but had not yet gone yet. So pretty good control set there. And I think that there's this myth out there that, you know, women aren't necessarily going to help each other. And I just think it's a myth and it is not true. And what I saw in reporting this book is that especially women of our generation, they understand that not only do they want each other to succeed, but we need each other to succeed, to help each other. And there's this, it's, I think it's a generational shift and this sort of this momentum towards how, like lifting each other up because we know that will benefit all of us. Yeah. And crew, which you mentioned is CRU and you don't yeah, have crew. to, yeah, chief, you have to be a C-level, a C-level executive, I believe, unless they've modified that. But crew is for, for anyone who's interested. Chief is right? VP level and above and crew is for anybody. And by the way, Tiffany Dufu, who founded that company, who's in the book, phenomenal leader. And her whole thing is, she wrote a great book called Drop the Ball, if I could tease that a little bit about, about figuring out which things you could let go of and sort of separating from the, the stereotypes about all the things that working women need to do. So I'm grateful for your friendship. And you also talk about this idea of gratitude and the difference between how men and women, I think, react to receiving gifts, but also how they experience gratitude in their lives. Can you close us out with an explanation of that? Sure. Well, I'm very grateful for your friendship and your support through this crazy book writing process. But the sort of the studies find that women are more comfortable expressing gratitude and feeling gratitude. And that's something that sometimes men feel more uncomfortable with. That could be because it's associated with maybe owing someone something, but women are just okay and enjoy this feeling of gratitude. That has something to do with leadership because there are these studies showing that if you as a leader feel gratitude, maybe it's gratitude for the ability to solve a problem, to be in a position to see something that needs fixing, then if you feel gratitude, you're going to make longer term decisions. They did a study about offering people money now or money later, and then asking them to reflect on something they felt grateful about. The people who experienced that feeling of gratitude were dramatically more likely to wait and take the long term reward. And the same thing 
is found to apply to leadership. So if you're feeling very grateful for the position you're in, like this woman I profile named Julia Collins, who runs a company called Planet Forward that's trying to address climate change and global warming, she is planning for 100 years. She's going for the long-term goal. She's not looking for the short-term gain. And I think in life and business, we should all be thinking long-term and not just for the short-term payoff and the instant hit of getting something now versus waiting for something bigger and better later. And this idea that practicing gratitude is so valuable in life and business and work is something that I try to try to think about a lot in my life when we're just like rushing through the day and thinking what we need now, now, now. Practicing gratitude actually is actually a business skill. If you can't tell, I'm really enthusiastic about Julia's book, When Women Lead. And even if you don't run a business or don't work for a business or aren't really interested in entrepreneurship or leadership, it's a fascinating read. And I think will inspire all of you by what some pretty incredible women are accomplishing in the world. It definitely made me feel more optimistic about our future. I'll certainly say that. I just wanted to read you a bit from Julia's conclusion. She writes, I set about writing this book because I had a strong sense from years of accumulated encounters with female entrepreneurs that there was something special about them. At the outset, I expected to find at least a few innate traits, superpowers, shared by these impressive women, and I did indeed find a number of powerful commonalities. Women tend to have an attention to context and an instinct to search for structural solutions rather than quicker but more temporary fixes. They are more likely to seek out diverse perspectives and incorporate them into their decision-making, and they tend to pursue purpose-driven companies and show vulnerability. All of these things are conducive to successful leadership, yet are less often recognized as essential traits for a successful leader. What was most surprising to me about these characteristics, though, was that they were not innate. I found that women had, over the course of their careers, created their powers by practicing and honing a series of strategies and approaches. What I think is so fascinating about all of that and the fact that these are cultural attributes and not inborn is that men can learn them too. And maybe from there, we'd have a more equitable and balanced world. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.